0: This week's John Tap Racing podcast is brought to you by Inglis, number one in its field. When Brian Martin decided to hang up his binoculars for the first time in 2007, I thought he was making his run way too early. He was just 57, and he was calling at the top of his game. But after 36 years, he felt he'd done enough and was anxious to change direction. He threw himself into a new racing syndication concept and introduced many new owners into the game. Just three years later, he had an offer from a Melbourne radio station, SEN, to return to race calling. They were planning a restricted coverage of metropolitan racing only on Saturdays and public holidays and only in the non-football season. The hours suited Brian and he hadn't really gotten race calling out of his system after all, he was to stay with SEN for seven more years before announcing his second retirement, which he did after last year's Melbourne Cup. My old mate Brian Martin is online to talk to me now on the podcast. Great to catch up, Brian.
1: you too, John, uh, wonderful to talk to you again and um... Gee whiz! When you uh, just in the introduction, I thought, yeah, he's right. He's spot on. That's exactly how it happened. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, we've come out the other side, mate. We've come out the other side. There
0: was one embarrassing sidelight to your comeback, if I may be so bold as to pass it on. When you retired the first time, you gave your binoculars to a young race caller, Edward Sadler. You Indian giver.
1: <laughs> I did <laughs> uh, lovely lovely young bloke and uh, I said to him in 2007 I said Edward I don't need these anymore they're they're an expensive uh, Carl Zeiss binocular 16 by 50 and um, I've had them for nearly 30 years look after them they're uh, they've been a great great servant to me they're our tool as you know John and I said look after them and you you hold on to them for as long as you like but as long as I know they're safe with you, anyway. Um, uh, just on two years later, I knocked on his door. I said, mate, can I have those glasses back? <laughs> <laughs> he slammed the door in my face. No, he didn't. No, a that's a
0: great story. <laughs> hey, Brian, uh, that's one hell of a set of binoculars, a huge magnification, 15 by 60s, ideal for that straight six at Flemington.
1: Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I remember Bill Collins uh, getting a pair back in the early, oh, probably about the mid-80s, Bill was still calling and uh for Flemington we needed them and even at Sandown for the thousand meter start and for Ballarat at the Provincials and then Greg Miles also uh went that way too and I remember buying my set uh, they're about three and a half thousand dollars in Hong Kong mm. in about 1985-86 but um although oh, they're, they're, they're a great saver for um, you know when, when you're doing those long distance uh, those those where they get so far away but uh, you know they're your tool as, as you know John and you to have the best of them but um yeah, beautiful glasses, ice glass.
0: The 1956 Melbourne Cup winner, Evening Peel, was very significant in your life, Brian. At age uh, 14 or thereabouts, um, you took yourself off to radio school, all as a result of listening to that Melbourne Cup broadcast in 1956, the year of the Melbourne Olympics. <laughs>
1: correct we uh, we lived in a sort of a working class suburb uh in melbourne called ivanhoe we're in west ivanhoe uh closer to the railway tracks <laughs> and, um i remember going to primary school i had two older brothers john and ken and uh i was six and dad had no real interest in racing he was a hard-working textile cutter a beautiful man left us in 1984 um, when he passed on but um uh my best friend but uh, dad had no real interest in racing and, and mum mum would go to the races sort of oakstay and make a hat and go off with a girlfriend so that was the only uh, connection to racing that i knew of but i remember they had a sweep in the street in green street uh, west Ivanhoe, where we lived and um dad put us all in it was sixpence to go in and two bob first prize if you drew the cup winner well you know when you're six <laughs> you're in grade one and you know if you can win two bob it's a fortune so yeah. um I, I drew Evening Peel, and I remember sitting with Mum and Dad. It was the, the year the TV came in, but we uh, we weren't wealthy enough to get a you know black and white TV. So we're listening to the radio, listening to the Melbourne Cup, and sitting there with Mum and Dad and my two brothers. I remember lying on the on the carpet of the floor like an inquisitive little kid, and I had the we Dad had the Bakelite box in the corner of the uh, <laughs> the, the lounge room, and uh, when this description of the Melbourne Cup came on. I was intrigued. I was absolutely captivated. I was around the back, behind the valves where the lights were on, you know, behind mm. the station calls, and um, tried to work out where this this voice and this crystal clear voice and this description and the excitement mm. of this horse race was coming from. And, oh, that got me. That absolutely hooked me. An evening Pier 1, so, you know, a bit of cash landed <laughs> as well. Oh, um, yeah. But I, I loved it. I loved the call. And from then on, you know, inquisitive, wanted to know more about it reading the paper, kids at school running around the Oval had changed their names to Sailor's Guide and Tulloch and Doolagiri and we <laughs> did three at the lunchtime break. So that was it. I was always going to do it, John, at some stage.
0: Yeah, Brian, that was the defining moment.
1: Yeah, oh, no doubt. No doubt. That was, <laughs> believe it or not, that's um, 62 years ago. Can you uh, believe yeah, it?
0: Yeah, evening, yeah. Peel. I had yeah. the great honour and pleasure to do a long interview with George Podmore some years ago on the Gulf Coast. Potty rode Evening Peel that day, and without taking anything away from Evening Peel or George Podmore, I think uh, the second horse should have bolted in, Red Craze. uh, Unbelievable performance. He got stood on his head at the half mile and uh, flashed home. He should have won the the race clearly, but that's not what the record book says. I
1: reckon reckon he had 10-1 or something, Red Craze. He was a champion from New Zealand, wasn't he?
0: Great horse, trained by Tommy Smith. Arthur Ward yeah. rode him in that Melbourne Cup.
1: Every right. time I look at Red Craze, so you, you see that chestnut, but, and he was that mean, hungry-looking New Zealand star.
0: He was. Your first <laughs> job in radio was at 3AW, and a most important posting, you were the mailboy.
1: I certainly was, yep. Yeah, I um, I started there when I was 16. I'd um, embarked on a, on a career, a... Um, A trade, John, I I went to tech school the last couple of years of school, and uh, I was going to be a carpenter, and uh, (laughs) I I got a job at um, a shop fitting place where they made the counters for shops in um, Riversdale Road, Camberwell, so it wasn't far from home, and I lasted three days. The bloke said, uh, you know, you've got to sweep sawdust for two days in a row, and uh, I didn't fancy that. From there, I went to the tramways as a clerk, counted (laughs) the tickets and, and, and the money when the you know, the conductors had come in. But anyway, um, I was watching and, you know, hoping that I'd get a break somewhere and, and uh, got got the uh, the mailboy job, which, you know, broke my hips getting there to 3AW, and I'd collect the mail at the GPO and walk right up the top of the hill at Trove Street, to 380 Trove Street, where 3AW was, but The great thing about that, John, was there was a guy there who'd called back through the the 30s and 40s when I got there. So he's a bit older, but he's a wonderful character called Arthur Lister.
0: Oh, I remember him well, yeah.
1: Yeah, he used to call races, I think, uh, at AW originally and may have even gone across to 3XY. In the days of Fred Tupper, and there were a lot of callers, there'd be four or five stations doing the races. And Artie was a beautiful man, and he took me under his wing. And I'd go to the races on Saturday, my day off, with my tape recorder and the binoculars, and tape the races. And he'd listen to them on Monday, and say, you know, smack are you, you know, you're going too fast. You know, like as you were probably the <laughs> same as me, you, you yeah. went at a hundred miles an hour because of nerves and adrenaline. Yeah, it was, it was a great learning curve, it really was.
0: 1970 was a big year for young Brian Martin. You got a job <laughs> at Five DN Adelaide as a panel operator. And second string race caller to a little bloke called Kevin Dagg, who I ran into at a corporate breakfast at the Ballarat trotting track three or four years ago, and I hadn't seen him for a long, long time.
1: Yeah, Kevin and I got on well. We went there in 1970 and five DN in Adelaide had gone into racing. They'd been in, in racing a few years earlier and then sort of gone out of it. And uh, they wanted to come back with, with TAB, you know, uh, funding. They wanted to come back with a full blown racing coverage. So they needed race callers, and uh, Kevin was calling around the Gippsland area here in Victoria. So he was the number one man, and I went as the trainee race caller I was 20 and I'd do the breakfast show be the panel operator uh, for a guy called John Cook so I'd push the buttons and play the commercials and the records in the morning from five till nine and then jump aboard the the, the news van with Kevin and we go off to the races and and Daggy and I uh, got on well he's he a good caller too Kev but uh, he um mm. he, he he wouldn't always leave terribly early for the meeting <laughs> <laughs> many of the time the races were at Strathalbyn and we were new chums from Victoria and we drive to Murray Bridge or we go to Bella Club, we go to the wrong joint. <laughs> oh,
0: gosh. A bit like <laughs> but we casual got and through. laid
1: back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very laid back.
0: Mm. <laughs> so you got to call the Grand National in South Australia?
1: Yeah, yes. Yeah, I did. Um, it was about 19 – I think it was 1971. It was 1971 Grand National. It would have been about July mm. and um, – Bert Bryant had taken holidays, the great caller from Melbourne, 3UZ, the king of the 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 king of the callers, as, as we know, particularly in Victoria. And he, he'd gone on holidays to Cairns, and uh, he was up there with with Molly and, and the young kids. And anyway, uh, Bert was caught up with a few mates, and they'd gone fishing, but they were at the races at Cairns this particular day, and they were in the bar having a drink, and for some reason the call of the Grand National at Victoria Park, being called by Brian Martin, came through on the PA. Mm. And he heard this young bloke calling the the Grand National and uh, obviously was impressed. I don't know how, because I was as nervous as a kitten. But anyway, I didn't know Mm. he was listening, the great man. And he came back and said to Lewis Bennett, the the manager at three, who said, "Um, there's a kid over in Adelaide, I heard him call the Grand National, he did a good job, let's see if we can get him. And that's how I got to Melbourne. And I came to Melbourne in... um, late may 1972 i came home so i was away for uh, nearly two years but made a lot of great friends in adelaide and you know got got the kickstart there it was just just terrific but coming back to melbourne to three years, you said know, to join bert and john russell was you know it was absolutely my dream hopefully to work my way back but not quite two years so i was you know i was absolutely rapt to come home
0: now brian that went right through until 1984 when the unthinkable happened Three UZ, which had been the voice of racing around Australia uh, for so long, decided to cut racing completely.
1: Yeah, yeah, they did, John, and it was a it was it was a bad move. It was a bad move, um, and it, it it upset a lot of people because all of a sudden there was going to be a situation where racing, believe it or not, wouldn't be heard in Melbourne, wouldn't be heard in Victoria, like Victorian racing. So. The calls would have been done for the relays, you know, 2KY, uh, your stations through Sydney and Queensland, but in actual fact, it was nearly, it was sounding as though it was going to be a blackout of race description. So it was, a, you know, racing was going to be in dire straits because of turnover. There's no t- TV coverage at the time, but um, they cobbled sort of the, the funding and, and, and sort of got government uh, assistance, et cetera, to go to 3DD. So they got it done pretty quickly. So 3DB needed more callers. Um, There was a job there for me to go across uh, to be number two to Bill Collins. So, you know, I I was very spoiled because I worked under Burt Bryant for uh, nearly 10 years and then to go and join the Prince of Callers, as we say, Collins in in 84 uh, was fantastic for me. But it left colleagues like Johnny Russell and Peter Donegan out sort of on a limb. They, They had nowhere to go. And and Jr. Johnny Russell was calling for um, two UE, I think it was for a little while. Mm. Um, but it, it was it was a terrible time for broadcasters and and for radio here from a racing point of view. But I survived, but a few of the boys didn't. So um, you know that's the time I look back and it was a bad time, but it was a good time for me.
0: Just to highlight the unpredictability and the glorious uncertainty of this business, 1988, three UZ come back into racing again. Under yes, a new call yes. sign, Sport Nine Two Seven, and you were offered a yeah, job. You you came back from Three DB to rejoin Three UZ.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. You know the circle of life, and Bill Collins has gone across there too. Uh, it was probably just before eighty eight, and um, Bill uh, was going to retire in nineteen eighty eight, and he retired on Easter Saturday. 1988, and I took over as chief caller Easter Monday two days later. So, uh, you know, it it gets back to the right place at the right time, I'm sure, John, and, um, you know, I just kept chipping away and chipping away and thinking, you know, one day you might get the break, but I was happy in my own world sort of doing what I was doing, so you had to step up again and to follow someone like, you know, a, a great broadcaster, probably arguably one of the best ever, not only in Australia but in the world, in Bill Collins. To step into his shoes, it was a big call, uh, and I was very conscious of it. I knew I'd be compared to Bill. It's just human nature for people to say, oh, you're not as good as Bill. And, and I copped a bit of that too, but I just had to put my head down and my bum up and just do yeah. my thing, not try and be another Bill Collins or a Bert Bryant. try and be a, a Brian Martin, and hopefully um, it, it would work. It would be accepted, And but it, it took a little time, I'm sure, but I just kept going at it and uh, worked my hardest and, and enjoyed it too at the same time.
0: Bill Collins ticked every box as a racing commentator. He had a great understanding of racing. He had a great understanding of horses. Uh, He could preempt a move by a jockey in a race. Uh, He had an uncanny eye in a photo finish and wonderful fluency in the core.
1: Sums him up perfectly. Absolutely word perfect there. Um, And he had, and he said, the only advice he, he was... It's interesting you talk about Bill because, you know, I work with him um, in the studios and then at the races, but uh, we'd go to the races and we'd go to Moody Valley on a Wednesday and he'd call the first six and he'd, he'd shoot through. He'd want to go home, so I'd do the last two. But I'd take the gear out, so I'd set the gear up. I reckon a half a dozen times he, he'd come into the box, I'd, I'd be there an hour before the first or whatever, and Bill would come into the box on the 10 minutes before the first race and he'd look across and, hello, how are you? He'd have no idea who you were, Um, Mm -hmm. and he wasn't being rude, but he was just preoccupied. Yeah, he was distant. He was distant, and I'd go, "Hey, Bill, hello, how are you?" And I reckon by about three o'clock in the afternoon, he worked out who you were, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, he—he was an amazing punter. He'd back three or four horses in a race sometimes, where he'd lay four to one on the place. Uh, Great man with figures, terrific card player loved playing at the casino he was a brain like no other like no other as you said as a race caller he had it all but, but what he had and Bert had it too you had it in spades was that sense of occasion the sense of what you were doing and what you were calling this is a this is not only a magic moment but this is going down in history like superimpose with your calls of the, the great superimposed winning the the four-mile races at um, in Sydney, um, the Epsoms and the Doncasters and, and all those calls of Kingston Town, you had the sense of occasion and guys younger than you and and the, the, my peers, we picked that up and if you didn't pick that up, you're a dill. You, you've, you've missed mm-hmm. a free kick um, and that's what Bill had. He'd rise to the occasion at the right time. He wouldn't be screaming at the top of the race because you'd run out of breath and you'd, you wouldn't have the pitch to get it right at the finish. But he had it in – he was amazing. He was amazing. The only tip he, he ever gave me, he said to me, he said, Brian, all I'll say to you is when you're calling, always think that you're calling to a blind person, a person who's visually impaired. You're the wordsmith, but at the same time, you are the artist. You're painting the picture. Never forget that. And that stuck with me. All the way through my life. It was a good tip and it was a free tip too. But very lucky to work under those guys and around those guys because if you didn't learn there was something wrong with you.
0: Well, Brian, because of the enormous costs involved in having you as special guest on this podcast, <laughs> we're going to have to hear from our sponsor. We'll be back in a moment. For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most dealings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis number one in its field. My special guest on the podcast is former outstanding race caller Brian Martin, uh, in retirement for the second time, and uh, fans of Brian Martin should not give up. You just never know what <laughs> what he's likely to do next month or next year. Well, Brian, where does one start with the highlights of your career? You had a terrific experience in 1990 when you were the only English-speaking caller to broadcast Better Loosen Ups win in the Japan Cup. No broadcast box, out in the open, with 167,000 people. Oh,
1: dear, yeah. Look, I I remember that as though it was yesterday, as they say, and it's, um, what are we up to now? It's 28 years um, this November, and I flew over on the wednesday before the japan cup on the sunday the cup was run on the 24th of november that uh, year in 1990 and the breeder harold martin who uh, stood the mayor stood the stadium loosen up up at his property at berrigan and um he bred bred better loosen up so you know being a proud breeder he was going over for the japan cup and the horse had taken everything before him through our spring from the fee into the cox plate to the mckinnon and he was the champion of australian racing by 100 yards and um he took on a crack field. There was Belmez, the King George winner from England. There was Kakawithis. There was the American uh, Californian Gallopers. And they say it was one of the best fields assembled uh, ever in the 1990 Japan Cup. So I arrived there uh, early Thursday morning. We saw the horse gallop on Friday the uh, Gallup was a little bit upside down. He, he was a lazy track worker, but he went a bit too quick and took hold of the uh, the girl who rode him. Mm. But they, they rectified that with a bit of work on the Saturday, but they got him to settle. And um, going to the races that day, I was as nervous as all hell. But the position to call the race was on the fifth tier of the grandstand. The grandstand there at the Fushu Racetrack in Tokyo would have been... Probably 450 metres long, John, uh, Mm. to to accommodate all the people. And the fifth tier right up at the top was the gallery for the media. Now, the media gallery was open, as you said before. So there were journalists, a plethora of blackheads all along the line there (laughs) of the Japanese journalists. There was, I reckon, half a dozen Japanese race callers, not in booths, but all in the open. A guy from Hong Kong. And me and I, I, to to get the elevation for my binoculars, I had a, like a short little, like stand. The stand was only about 18 inches high, the microphone stand. Mm-hmm. So I had to prop it up to get up to eye level because I'm sitting at a bench. So I had a Coca-Cola, wooden Coca-Cola crate and three Japanese phone books. <laughs> so that, that sort of got the glasses up to my eye levels.
0: So <laughs> Very sophisticated. <laughs>
1: And I taped them down with some gaffer tape to make sure they didn't move at the half mile. Okay. And um, out they came, and they they came onto the track. Stylish Century was over there at the time. Kevin Noses. Mm. and um, Better Loosen Up. They were the two Australian representatives. And um, look, the, the, the public had got on. The, the the putting public had got on to the fact that he was a, a great horse from Australia. Um, better Loosen Up, and he was at the top of his top of his uh, powers. And um, he got into about nine to two, second or third pick. But I remember they had a long preliminary. And a lot of people don't know this, but in the preliminary, um, Kevin Moses down the back straight actually got off Stylish Century to adjust the bridle, and the horse took off. So Stylish Century, without K Moses, went two laps of the Fushu racetrack. Mm-hmm. And th- there's no PA there, but the crowd, the enormous sound of the crowd, I've never, never experienced anything like it. And every time he'd come down the straight, the stage and start the century, you'd remember him well. They'd roar at him, and he'd see himself up on the big screen they had there, and he'd take off again. The years would go up. So he probably shouldn't have run. He he ran. He sat up on the speed, uh, but weakened in the home straight. But that was drama before the race. When they got down to the barrier, Michael Clark actually went to a little area where they had a sort of like a like a large garage shed where for a 2,400-metre race, the horses would sort of congregate in there if, if snow was falling. Well, there was no snow, but Michael Clarke went over there, jumped off, went behind a tree and had a 1,000 to three.
0: <laughs> a nervy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't exactly. had that one before. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Anyway, the, the great horse settled back in the last three or four and, I remember they turned for home and Carca had taken the lead and the French Philly Ode was finishing wide. And I'm, I'm looking for blue, as we called him, BLU, better loosen up. And because of the number he was, he was number he was number 10 for memory, number 10 or 14, one or the other. Hmm. But he had a green cap. They, they, they put different colored caps on for their numbers. And I'm looking for him and looking for him and concentrating on the, on the race, of course. And then I saw him come. And because I'd called him through the spring, I thought there's no other horse will be stronger than this horse, and he ranged up and he nailed them in a three-way finish right on the line and right near the post, I can still see it now, his head was nearly horizontal to the running rail. He stuck his head out. He was such a great competitor, fierce competitor, put his head out to get up in a photo, and I declared he'd won for Australia, yeah. and the photo took an eternity. I thought to myself, God, I hope <laughs> I'm right. Oh, yeah. you, you, know, you know what it's like, John, yeah. going no, through lonely it.
0: Lonely feeling.
1: I'm right. And they broke into the cricket coverage on Channel 9. You might remember Australia and um, England were playing uh, the test. It was in Brisbane. And it was um, Ian Chappell who actually crossed to me through Channel 9. And they did, they did a great coverage, Channel 9, because even when the photo was on, they put the split screen up. And the roar that went up, um, it was just, it took your breath away. It's just incredible. Mm. An incredible moment.
0: And your famous exclamation has passed into racing folklore. Better loosen up wins for Australia.
1: Well, it's the best best I could do at the time, I think. (laughs)
0: It, It was good enough. Brian, you had the privilege of owning a share in a wonderful horse called Fields of Omar. 13 wins, 15 placings from 45 starts. He ran in five cox plates and he won two of them. He ran second in another, third in another, and one unplaced effort. Now, let's just clear up the ownership composition. Uh, Messier's O'Connor, Cork, Sorel, and Le Grand, or Le Grand, mm. and also the No Big Deal Syndicate. You manage that part of it. Yeah. How many people were in the No Big Deal Syndicate?
1: Uh, probably... No big deal. We own 22 and a 22 uh, percent. So the No Big Deal owned 22 percent of the horse, and I reckon there was probably eight couples, and then the extension of the couples was were families and friends and like that. But I bought the horse Murray Bell, who you'd remember as a journalist in um, in Sydney, writing mm. for the Daily Mirror. Murray was also a very, very good bloodstock agent, a great eye, and Murray found the horse at the English Sales, your sponsor at the English Sales here in Melbourne, and I'd been with Murray, we had a bit of money from our city, we were racing horses with Colin Hayes, and we had a little bit of a bank, and a few people said, yeah, we'll be in, I said, look, I'm going to try and buy a Colt and a filly at the Melbourne Premier Sale, anyway, I spent all afternoon with Murray, and Murray would have them out and look at them, and the vets would look at them, and, and... I started to go stir-crazy after a while because they're all starting to look the same, and, and I had to go and do the four propeller at the next day. But anyway, I saw a filly. We had a look at a filly by Bellotto and uh, we got her, and he rang, and he said, there's a colt here by uh, Rubiton. I said, yeah, I called him. He's a beautiful horse, Rubiton, by Century. Mm-hmm. So the better boy line, and he, and he was a great racehorse. And I said, yeah, I love the Rubitons. And he said, out of a mare called Finetto, uh, who had one start, won a race at Flemington up the straight and broke down. So said, yeah, I called that race too, I remember, by Soretto, mm-hmm. And the breeder was Martin O'Connor, who I knew. And Murray, Murray said, this horse has been passed in at uh, 45,000. The breeder wants 50,000. He said, I'll put him on the phone to you. You talk to him and tell me if you want to take him. And Murray's words were prophetic. He said i tell you one thing. He said, if you buy this colt, he said, you'll have a lot of fun in time. You can set back a little, but you'll have a lot of fun in time. Well, the horse raced till he was nine and won six and a half million. It's a good mm. call.
0: Yeah, good judge. My word. <laughs> Martin
1: came on the line. I said to Martin, I said, I'll take the colt, but I said, I'm going to package the colt and the filly up together. Will you, take, will you take a part of that? He said, yep, yep, I want to stay in the colt. So he took 22%. Uh, Mr. Cork and Mr. Sale and Mr. Grand. They all took 22, 22 and 11. So that's how it happened. So I paid the 50K for him. Uh, anyway, a couple of people were a bit slow. There's one bloke in particular who was going to come in. He took the knock and didn't turn up. <laughs> and uh, I faced a huge bill for the Colton of Philly. It was 81000 mm. And we'd all put our money in bar this bloke. Who, I won't name him. I think he finished up in the slammer. He, um, <laughs> he, he didn't weigh in. This bludgeon this didn't <laughs> yeah, weigh in, John. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, and I, nearly, I nearly fell into him. He said, send the money to me and I'll let it and I'll pay English." And I said, that's a good idea. I said, oh, hang on, hang on. There. And then a mate of mine said, so that bloke that you got involved, he said, uh, he's a big punter down here at one of the Bayside TABs. Oh, that's the best tip I've ever got. I said, thank you for that. I know where all the money would have gone. Anyway, we got around it just well, he, night. He's, know, I never told my wife.
0: <laughs> his cox plate wins, Brian, were three years apart, 2003, 2006. You called both of them. And yeah. I was thinking of you on both <laughs> occasions from the moment the barrier opened. How the hell did you get away with such control and composure?
1: Well, I knew that I had to... Uh, The call had to come first, regardless of the emotion and the involvement with the horse. And he ran in five, he ran in 2002, when he ran fifth, and then the first of the wins was 2003. And we planned, we had a strategy meeting at the stable on Friday morning, looking at the videos of Stephen King. The horse had come back from a suspensory. He'd run last first up at um, Caulfield when uh, Exceed and Excel won the race in track record time. Mm-hmm. But they were having trouble with his feet and, the, and the shoes were wrong, the elevation of the shoe. You, being a trotting man, would understand. Mm-hmm. It was just, just a little bit out. So and he, he was hurting. So they corrected that. He came back second up after nine months off. He ran second straight away in a two rack handicap. And the cut was out of the track. Stephen King wrote him. He said, Yeah, he went, Well, yeah, I'll, I'll ride him in the Cox plate. And the Cox plate. Uh, the favourite was uh, the great horse, Lonro. Mm -hmm. Defire was there. The field was down to eight, and the rain came sort of on the morning of the race. We had a plan. We had a plan in place where we knew that the horse from South Africa, Paraka, would lead, the Shower of Roses would sit on it, and we'd be third, and the, the game plan was clear. We said to Steve King, and he agreed, let's be in front of Lonro and Defire and draw them up, turn it into a dogfight from the turn, and make them earn it and we'll, we'll, we'll see how we go and it just went to script John and you know, I'm calling the race and down the back Paraka four links in front Shower of Roses seconds, three links to Fields of Omer and I'm thinking at the halfway mark this is going to script I can't believe this focus no, just keep your mind on the job son we come to the turn Paraka Paraka stops Shower of Roses is gone and we join in and hit the front at the 400 everything's going to script then I looked around and I saw this big black bludger's head long row looming <laughs> <laughs> Learning with yeah. the fire, and they came at him. It feels on the turn. He led a half length to fire and a half length to Lonro joining in, and that's where they stayed all the way up the straight. Mm. Couldn't it. A three million, <laughs> million dollar race, the Cox Plate, and he's won it by a neck.
0: <laughs> yeah, he just would not let them get yep. past him that day, but, would he? Oh,
1: he's a beautiful horse, brave horse, brave horse.
0: Brian, you've had some happy times in the racehorse syndication business with one devastating low. You tried a new concept about four years ago, uh, the purchase of a share in an expensive English stayer to run in the big cups in Melbourne. The idea on paper looked good. Gay Waterhouse agreed to train the horse and you launched a very expensive promotional and advertising campaign. Uh, You could even see it on billboards around the city of Melbourne. Yeah, the public yeah. response was disappointing and the whole thing <laughs> fell apart. Now, yeah. you got left holding the baby here, you repaid all the investors and you carried the full brunt of the advertising losses and it was a hell of a setback.
1: Yeah, it was, John. Um, I really thought that um, we called it Gay Living the Dream and Gay's been a friend of mine and... Uh, I've got great admiration for Gay. There's no greater ambassador in racing, and uh, she's been through a rocky road sort of when she started her training and kept fighting against the establishment and beat them uh, and has been a great trainer, there has been a great ambassador for racing. and I love what she does. I love what she – she lights up a room, She's and I call her a good friend. And um, I took the concept to her a good few years ago, and she liked it. And the whole idea – and not a big outlay was to get people involved to maybe live the dream of having some part of a horse that runs in a Melbourne Cup. That was the whole whole operation, the way we could, you know, get people involved over a three- or four-year period but have a runner in the Melbourne Cup and thus the name, go living the dream. But the response, we got about 80 people that um, wanted to be involved, so they made their first payment, so that sits sort of in, in, a, in, a, in a bank account. But the biggest cost came with you know the legal bills to set it up with the prospectus the advertising we went huge on the advertising and at the same time bill vlalos the guy that started that punting syndicate and also was buying yearlings and you know sisters to black caviar and and all these sorts of things he went belly up as well um, for millions and millions of dollars so the publicity on sort of syndication and anything to do in that area hit the headlines and a lot of people suffered and this just didn't work. It, it it didn't get any traction. So um it wasn't hard to pay the people their first payment back. That that was easy because that was just sitting in an account. Um but the costs for the legal work and the advertising came to about a hundred and seventy five thousand and I'd signed off for all that. Mm-hmm. So I'd signed off for it, I had to find it. So um Yeah, we got there. Uh, We worked hard and um, my wife worked hard and I thought at one stage we are going to lose our unit. Um, But family rallied around and uh, a lot of sleepless nights and those things, I think, you know, people tend to sort of take them and and hold them to the chest. And, and, you know, I didn't share them with sort of not even with family, but it was affecting my health as well. And and in the finish, I had to say, look, this has hit hit and hit hard. Um, There's got to be a way around this. And we got our way out back and um the most important thing to me was to protect my name and you know there was never any doubt that I'd pay every every debtor but uh, I'd never endured anything like that in my life but I knew that one thing I'd worked hard and long to 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 have respect on the racing industry and keep my name clean so I had to pay every dime for those people who, for advertising and legal bills cost a fortune and the, the people that come into the city who got their money straight back and um I kept my name and my integrity. That was the most important thing to me. And um, we suffered a bit, but, mate, we got through the other end and you come out better for it.
0: And you've continued in the Brian Martin racing syndication business, uh, but in an uncomplicated way, in a straightforward way.
1: Uh, Yeah, what I do is I just put syndicates of 20 together and I manage them. So I don't have a syndicator's license. I never wanted a syndicator's license. I didn't want to be lying in bed thinking I've got $2 million worth of yearlings I've purchased and I don't have any owners. So I couldn't see myself doing that. Um, And I just, I I love getting people involved. It all stemmed from Fields of Omar and and the fun we had and getting people involved and people in my city gets pay, you know, $363 every uh, quarter. And they have shares, 10%, 20%, 50% in seven horses with different trainers. And um, I manage that. And I go to the track and we supply them with video and reports. And I just love seeing the joy it brings to people. But most importantly, for a small outlay, and that's that's what I get about, of.
0: You were a driving force in establishing the Living Legends concept as a result of uh, having been a part owner of Fields of Omar, The Living Legends property out near the airport is where retired champions uh, spend their final days. They're cared for, they're looked after, and uh, they're open for business for anybody who likes to come and visit them. And I believe fans of some of these great old horses come from all parts of Australia.
1: Correct, John. Yeah, in 2005... um Fields, Fields of Boma was still going, of course. And in the 2005 Cox Plate, he um, he ran third to the great Mekhibe Diva. And then he came out and won his last start, his last race start when he was nine. And he came from last and, and won the Cox Plate. So there was nothing more that he, he had to prove. He was, you know, he'd gone out like a champion at nine years of age. He beat El Segundo in a photo finish. He won it in 2007. So after his win in 2006, we... Um, He won on the Saturday, and on Monday morning at 10 to 8, he walked off the float from Lindsay Park, uh, Flemington Stable, out to Living Legends, and he's been there ever since. He goes away for different appearances over to Tasmania and different parts of Australia. But uh, there to meet him was Better Loosen Up and Might and Power and Deremus and we've been working hard on this concept to, to allow the, the, the racing fans to come back and, and see these champions. These, these horses, Apache Cats there now with Chief to deers and these horses know they were good, and they love the crowds. They love the fans, and we wanted them to still experience that, and people that get up close and personal. So it's it's a wonderful property. It's um, originally 150 acres owned by the government, a beautiful old home that was built there in the 1800s just behind the airport you can't miss it and we we fenced all the um all the the pastures and painted the railings and got some funding to do uh, build the shelters for the horses and um, it's we relied on funding all the way through and and got it up and going and just to make sure we looked after these great horses. Nick Moratus was terrific with might and power. And with Doremus, we had Terry Henderson sending the horse here. Apache Cats here now. Mm. Uh, horses from Hong Kong have come along. <laughs> and it's just wonderful. You know, if you want to chill, it's very therapeutic to just walk down amongst these old guys. They're all geldings. Uh, zipping's there and efficient. You know, the Melbourne Cup winner. He's a ghostly white now. And um, you, you go there and just just chill amongst them and see the beautiful old homestead. And in the background is the airport. So uh, it's it's a perfect place. It really is. And everyone's invited. i tell you who's there too, John Silent Witness, that great horse from Hong
0: Kong. Oh, well, yeah. Australian bred, but he, he raced yeah. exclusively in Hong Kong, didn't he? I think he won yeah, his he first 17 straight he? ride. He was a mighty horse. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, he was. He was a brilliant horse, brilliant horse. And um, he um, the, the, the Silent Witness people, the trainer and the jockey, actually do fly out a couple of times a year fly from Hong Kong into Tullamarine, catch a taxi, mm. come over, look at the horse, stay there for about an hour and get on the next flight back to Hong Kong. Goodness me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, lovely story.
1: Two yeah, final Jake's questions. was the mother, wasn't it, of Silent Witness, which was a Harry Lawton horse.
0: Yes, correct. Yeah. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. I had Jay Ford on the podcast recently, Brian. He was talking about Takeover Targets win yeah. uh, in the big sprint in uh, in Japan, and um, he was telling me that that was takeover target's supreme moment. He said he never in his life went better than he did that day. Silent yes. Witness was in the race and was unplaced, believe it or not.
1: Yeah, that's right, John. He um, Silent Witness actually got loose on the track going into that race during the mm. week. Mm. He um, uh, Felix Kosti, Kosti, I think was the jockey, and he, he threw him sort of when he was working during the week and he, I think his preparations sort of went a little bit upside down. It's about the only time I think Silent Witness was ever unplaced.
0: Correct, and he had excuses by the sound of it.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: Two final questions. Did you give those binoculars back to Edward Sadler?
1: Uh, you wouldn't believe it. Jared Waitley at SEN's got them now and he's going to be calling this stuff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Edward may never see him again. He's a million to one. <laughs> Final question: Have you gotten race calling out of your system?
1: No, I don't think so, and I, I won't be coming back. I'm not going to do a John Farnham. <laughs> um, no, it's look, it's in it's in its terrific hands with a bloke young man called Matt Hill. Um, who I recall coming up to the box when Greg Miles and I were up there calling at Flemington and Caulfield. He was 16. He's, that was 20 years ago. And he won the scholarship, the John Tapp scholarship. Mm. How apt, uh, Matty Hill. And you saw him in Sydney. Um, I know this This is a big call. Matt Hill might be the best we've ever had.
0: I am inclined to agree.
1: Mm. Outstanding. Yeah. Outstanding.
0: So. Lovely person. Uh, oh. Absolutely brilliant racing commentator, yep, yep, and yep. the the supreme test, surely, for that young man was to step into the breach for last year's famous spring carnival in Melbourne, group yep. one after group one after group one, culminating in the Melbourne Cup itself. Yes. Uh, I didn't detect a flicker of nerves at any stage oh. of the entire carnival; he's so yep. in control,
1: yep totally totally and a, a delight to be around um and i've always said to the callers coming from you know the junior callers, and i'm sure you'd agree john i've always said to them one thing remember you are the custodians of our craft i said the the great callers pass, pass the baton down to us the ken howard to john tap and bert bryan and john russell to brian martin to joe brown down to uh, Greg miles and, and other states around Australia Wayne Wilson down from Vince uh, Vince curry you know um, it's just it, it's it's you are the custodians of the profession and I think I think the craft is in fantastic hands I know it is here in Melbourne um, but no no my time's done now and um, I, I'd still find it probably hard this spring having done the last seven uh, to go and I was, I was going to go to the Memsey stakes the other day and I didn't. It was a cold, freezing day, so I said, no, I'm not going to go. It's too cold. (laughs) But um, I'll I'll probably – but when I was sort of out of it for two years, I went to the Caulfield Cup in 2008 after seven. I 2007, I'd retired. I remember being there on Caulfield Cup Day 2008. It was awful. I watched the Caulfield Cup, and I couldn't get out of the joint quick enough and get home. Mm. My wife thought I was an intruder. She went to belt me over there with a broom. (laughs) (laughs) I got home that early.
0: Yeah, you couldn't find a broadcasting box or a set of binoculars and you felt like a duck out of water.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I know exactly what you mean.
1: Brian Martin? You rang and told me that too. You said this is what's going to happen to you. You said you'll go through terrible withdrawal time and you're spot on.
0: Yeah. Last <laughs> winter, I backed. <laughs> Okay, mate. Lovely to reminisce. Great to talk. Uh, Thanks a million for being on the podcast and we'll do it again one day.
1: Good on you, John. Absolute delight to talk to you, mate. (laughs)
0: For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most dealings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for group one wins and the only auction house to sell a group one winning two year old. They sold four in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis number one in its field.